Coronavirus New Zealand, a daily stuff podcast. Hey, I see the Prime Minister has said that she's taking a 20% pay cut. And she's also volunteered her ministers and the public sector chief executives to take the same. Yeah, it made me think though, what should we do when our 20% pay cut arrives, do you reckon? I suppose we could drop the Wednesday episodes. Yeah, Wednesday. Or outsource the pandemic playlist to Spotify. Something to think about. In the meantime, welcome to Coronavirus NZ for Wednesday the 15th of April. I'm Adam Dudding. And I am Eugene Bingham. Each day we bring you the main stories, plus a few of the more unusual things we've seen from our lockdown locations. Well today, some schools are having a crack at getting back to work, doing this online learning thing with their students. And, you know, I I thought it had all the makings of a catastrophe. How do you stop kids messing around at the back of the class when the back of the class is actually their bedroom? And they've muted their microphone because they're actually just watching TikToks. However, my wife and I just received an email that reads, Dear parent slash caregiver, I noticed that your child has not attempted any of the right-angled triangles activities on Education Perfect. Just checking in with you to see if everything is fine and if you and your child have been receiving our email communications, question mark. If you could send me a reply, that would be much appreciated. So, even in the age of COVID and Zoom, some things remain the same. Teachers really can see round corners and they know when you're faffing about. Another blow for kids of all ages everywhere today, the release of the new season of the game Fortnite, which is one of the most popular video games in the world. It's been delayed. And most misspelt, I would add. Anyway, carry on. There you go. You're all about education today. And there's speculation it's because gaming developers working from home struggle with processing and graphics power. See, working from home is not all it's cracked up to be. Later on, we speak with Stuff Business reporter Susan Edmonds. She tells us that we shouldn't entirely freak out about KiwiSaver, so that's good news. But first, what's happened today? An interesting new number. More people have recovered from coronavirus than are currently ill with it in New Zealand. 20 new cases in the past 24 hours and 100 confirmed as recovered. That brings the total number of recoveries to 728 out of the 1,386 total cases. Look at that, a maths lesson right at the top of the episode. Another significant cluster has taken hold in an aged care residential facility, the fifth one. The chief ombudsman has announced he's investigating, saying the public needs reassurance. He said, I have to act now because several aged care facilities now have clustered the disease and sadly a number of people have died. US President Donald Trump has suspended funding to the World Health Organization and he's also ordered an investigation into its handling of the pandemic. The United Nations has weighed in saying there will be a time to ask questions, but that time is not now. Each week, opposition leader Simon Ridges jumps in his car and drives about 500 k's from Tauranga to Wellington, then dials in to one of the most important Zoom meetings in the country. He's the chair of the Epidemic Response Select Committee, which is the closest thing New Zealand has to a parliament at the moment. It's 11 MPs selected from all the parties, and three days a week from 10am, they run this special select committee that's got one job, to conduct a, quote, inquiry into the government response to COVID-19. So that means dialing in people like the Director General of Health, Ashley Bloomfield, or Finance Minister Grant Robertson, or an Australian health expert, say, to kick the tyres as the government takes these extraordinary measures to fight COVID-19. So the public can watch these Zoom meetings, and Stuff always has a reporter or two on duty just in case something fascinating happens. Henry Cook is one of the reporters who's often flicking on his computer to log in. Henry, what are some of the memorable moments over the weeks that this committee has been running? Morning, guys. Uh, I think 
Probably David Skigg's appearances have been some of the more memorable ones. David Skigg, is, he, he's a University of Otago epidemiologist. I think he is actually advising the government at, at a few levels as well. But he, he he is also just a very commanding presence and the kind of guy who is unafraid to really stick it to the government when they aren't doing something to the best of their ability and to do it with kind of poise, respect, and a lot of expertise behind him. But at the same time, he, he's not some, you know, partisan hack who just wants to smash the government up on something. He clearly wants the government response to be as, as kind of strong as possible. And he knows that it's a vehicle where a lot of the media, a lot of the public are watching, and he uses it as a useful vehicle there. I mean, there's also been lots of kind of moments of levity. To be honest, it's a select committee, and it still kind of feels like a select committee, so a lot of it is quite boring. Um, people seem to still seem to be very interested in it, but if you're like me, you've been watching select committees for years, um, there are still the kind of moments where you would usually I don't, put your laptop down and just kind of let your brain wander because you knew that whatever they were talking about would never make them feel scoring. <laughs> <laughs> but but now you're live logging everything, you kind of have to keep yourself a bit more alert than that. So the, the best kind of immediate you know, comedy you get from from politicians is, is mostly very, very dry things. People people like David Seymour, Paul Godsoff and Grant Robinson are all, all pretty pretty good at that. Robertson was probably at his best, I think, on the first day when he kind of just drolly noted that we're all epidemiologists now, as David Seymour made a point, um, making David Seymour quite angry, actually. But it's kind of replacing Parliament, the select committee, right? But it's also not Parliament at all, really. Parliament could pass laws. Parliament has more of a structure around question time where ministers themselves are challenged, but still has the structure of the select committee where both bureaucrats and ministers are brought in, where there's a lot of kind of discussion between MPs about how to, to go forwards on different things. There's rather than kind of, you know, out and out debate. Uh, and the tone is all a lot more low-key than you get in the House, which is very much full drama with, you know, 10-minute speeches and whatnot. It's much more deliberative and, and it's much more of a side of Parliament that you don't usually see on television. I guess it's a lot harder if you're a uh, if you're sitting at home with you know your your kids running around in the background to start getting on your high horse and making a pompous sort of speech saying does the minister still have confidence in the da 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 all that kind of stuff it's that much harder in the domestic setting I guess I think I think that is very hard when you're um when, when you're when you're sitting and I, I don't know just maybe you're soaked from the waist up um, in your living room. Uh, with your kids running around behind you as this happened, or you know, you might suddenly get some lag on your call just as you're really getting to the, to the best moment of your speech. Henry Cook, thank you very much for that insight into how this select committee works. Cheers. Thanks, guys. We've got to talk about Plan B. You know, this proposal that's come out of a group of six New Zealand academics who say that the lockdown needs to end as soon as possible and that the New Zealand government has overstated the risks of COVID-19. Part of me would really rather not talk about Plan B and it's for this reason. Journalists are always tempted to find balance in a story. But we've seen from the way that climate change science was twisted into a so-called debate that presenting a contrarian view as if it's equally valid isn't always the best way to get to the truth. And science isn't democratic. Physicists don't vote on whether gravity exists. They, they keep an open mind, they do experiments, they make observations. So there's that. But on the other hand, sometimes the minority view does turn out to be right. And, you know, that's what happened with, say, the science of continental drift or the, the early days of evolution science even. So, so what do we have in this current situation? We've got a fast-changing situation with incomplete data. We've got abundant evidence from abroad that COVID-19 can swiftly fill like a city's hospitals and overwhelm the morgues even. You've got a situation in New Zealand where we appear to have it increasingly under control. 
And now we've got competing views about where the balance lies, where the balance lies between lives lost and the economy. It's really hard stuff to build a decision on, isn't it? But there are a couple of analysis pieces today, one that was in stuff and one in newsroom, which steps through the, pl- the claims of the Plan B academics. And the newsroom piece is a line that seems to really cut to the heart. Microbiologist and science communicator Susie Wiles is strongly defending the current government line of aiming for elimination of COVID. And she's saying that her differences with the Plan B group, led by Simon Thornley of Auckland University, is about more than just facts and figures. As the newsroom article puts it, in the end, Susie Wiles says her disagreement with Thornley can only be explained in one way. They have fundamentally different values. So yeah, we we need to keep considering different approaches and crunching the numbers on different scenarios. But sometimes it's not just about facts and figures. In good faith, numerate people who know what they're talking about can come to quite different conclusions about what the numbers are saying and where to go from here. But yeah, I'm I'm interested to see where this particular conversation is going to go. Hey, crime's down. There's not enough public drunkenness to get a decent pub brawl going. Burglars are reluctant to break into houses where everyone's home. Uh, weirdly, even the number of urgent protection orders made in the family court is falling, though, to be fair, experts reckon we should not take that to mean that family violence is in fact down. It's, it's more likely that it's just harder to call for help under lockdown. But in any case, cometh the hour, cometh the crime. We have a new class of public misbehaviour that's afflicting the world. It's called Zoom bombing, and it's when you find out the meeting code for a Zoom meeting, say an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting or a virtual school classroom or just a random chat between friends, and then you come into the meeting and act like a total dickhead, posting porn images, saying obnoxious and sexist and racist stuff, and then running away and giving yourself a two-handed high-five from the safety of your smelly teenage bedroom, because I'm kind of hoping it is mostly smelly teenagers who are doing this. Anyway, it is such a problem that Zoom has been frantically upgrading the security in its software and handing out advice on how to make sure your meetings are set up in a more private way. A lot of it's about vetting people who try to enter your call and only letting in those people you do recognise. But there was one tip that kind of surprised me. Apparently you should also turn off the annotation feature so people can't come in and literally draw rude images over the faces of people in the meeting. So the mind boggles, but I'm I'm imagining this has got to be more cock and balls graffiti rather than a harmless killery was here. Anyway, It's all terrible, of course, but it kind of tickled me that even amid a high-tech pandemic, a jerk with a Sharpie can still make a real impact. You know, we keep going back to variations on a theme, don't we? Wow, you know, the US just keeps getting worse and worse. In New York, they've adjusted the death toll up by 3,700 today to include people who hadn't been tested before they died. But there are some glimmers of hope. In large states like California, they appear to have escaped the worst projections, even though they had some of the country's first coronavirus cases. The governor is moving towards lifting restrictions there. There's a New York Times piece which looks at why California may have fared better than other states. Some of the reasons are early social distancing and stay-at-home orders, a work-from-home culture, a population used to dealing with catastrophe, think fires and earthquakes, and lower density living. At the weekend, I was talking to a, a doctor friend from Northern California And he talked about guilt. I suppose you'd call it survivor guilt. But what he meant was, where he is, there's been about 30 deaths and 600-odd cases. But that's nothing compared to elsewhere in the States. And he said he looks towards his colleagues in emergency rooms in New York and other high-density areas like Chicago. And he's kind of torn. He's wondering, you know, should I take leave of absence and go and help? But if he does that, is he abandoning his own community in case they need him? Just, you know, it just seems like a no-win situation, doesn't it? 
But let's head back to New York because that's where we've found today's Plague Playlist contribution. So Jerry, Jerry Lewis, not Jerry Lewis. So Jeffrey Lewis, a singer-songwriter from The Big Apple, has been inspired to produce a particularly dark ditty. He calls it an ode to self-isolation and he's reporting from the East Village of New York City. It's a real bad time to take a trip to China or a road that leads to Rome. But what's the hurry? Because all that worry is coming right here to our home. And now it came ashore, and now it's at our door. It's coming for us, downtrodden masses. And if you're short of breath, it's that old black death getting medieval on our modern asses. And the human race is getting put in place. I've probably caught a case. I think I touched my face. I'm trying oh, I like that one. You know, I'm, I'm enjoying far too many of these Plague Inhaler songs. I mean, the thing about that one, this guy's a real musician, and you can kind of tell there's some, a real bit of Lou Reed sort of darkness about it. I, I love it. And it has taken over um, Thank You Baked Potato in our house. I'm now going around saying, keep it chill on the Eastville. But you're out west. I know. I'm on the east. I'm going to take it. It's mine. All right. So since 2007, we've been pouring money into KiwiSaver, saving for retirement with the help of the government. About 3 million New Zealanders have signed up for it, and we've saved about $70 billion or so. So a lot of us have a lot invested. And at a time like this, there's a lot of people worrying about what's going to happen to their nest egg. Yeah, I saw a tweet in March saying, whatever you do, don't look at your KiwiSaver balance. So I did, and I regretted it. Well, luckily for us, we have someone much more sensible on the line, someone who knows about KiwiSaver, staff business journalist Susan Edmonds. Thanks for joining us again, Susan. No problem. So... We know COVID-19 is monstering the economy and markets all over the world. What has that meant for KiwiSavers? Um, well, the reason you would have seen that tweet in March is that there was a really dramatic fall in markets and they went, I think in the US it was down 30% in the space of basically days. And so if you looked at your KiwiSaver balance, lots of people had lost tens of thousands of dollars, which is pretty scary, you know, when you think about it. But it, it has moderated and it's not as bad now as it was then, but it is still down, especially when you consider that, you know, we've come off years of amazing returns. Last, I mean, last year, the New Zealand share market was up 30% in a year, which is unusual, but we've had year on year on year of it. So we just have totally got out of the habit of losing money, I think. And then suddenly we've realized that, oh, this is actually possible and your KiwiSaver balance can go down as well as up. And that's a bit, a bit scary for some people, I think. What are, the, what are the things about COVID-19 that are having an impact? I guess for KiwiSaver funds, you're seeing that volatility because of your exposure to the share market. And all over the world, companies are downgrading their profit guidance and what they expect to earn because of the lockdowns that we're seeing from COVID-19 and just the general health impact of the virus. So as those companies become worthless, so too do their shares. And then so does your bit of those companies that you have in your KiwiSaver fund. And they, they are picking up again because people are now kind of seeing the governments and central banks jumping into action and thinking, oh, maybe we'll offset some of the downturn. New Zealand is tiny in the global economy. So does, do the decisions we make here about the length of the lockdown, you know, um, what level to come back to at what point, the thing that everyone's getting really exercised about right now, does that have much effect on what happens to our investments? A bit, but for the typical KiwiSaver fund, you'd have a lot of money in, in Australian and US and, you know, emerging market shares. So your KiwiSaver will have some money in the local market, but it definitely won't be all of it. 
And also that that kind of diversification can be a really good thing because you don't just have shares, you've got other assets. So that's why I have some stats here, but um, most KiwiSaver funds haven't fallen as much as the markets have themselves. Morningstar data says that the NZX was down 13% overall in March, but conservative funds typically fell on average only 2.98%. Um, growth funds, 10.5% and aggressive, which is would have the most exposure to shares, um, 11.9%. What does conservative mean and what does aggressive mean? Oh, sorry. So conservative has more like in cash and term deposits and things like that. And then as you go up the scale, you have more exposure to you know, property, shares, that sort of thing. So so the fact that they've fallen n- not as much as the, the share market has mm. is a reflection of the diversity of the investments. Can you just sort of walk us through what that means? Yeah, yeah. So when you put your money into your KiwiSaver fund, your fund manager then puts it into assets. And it won't just be, I'm buying all shares. It'll be like, I'm buying a bit of these bonds, these shares, some keeping some in cash so that you can invest more in future some term deposits and things like that. It's just like spreading your money, spreading your risk. Is there anyone who is in a bad position right now? I mean, what, what what's the worst possible scenario? Um, the worst possible scenario is probably if you had just realised that you're in a high growth fund and you shouldn't be. Like if you want to buy a house this year, but you've realised you're in an aggressive fund, that's not a good place to be because it's kind of, it's almost too late to move once markets fall. You know, mm. I guess you should always look at your risk profile and make sure that you're in the right type of fund for what you want your money to do. But, you know, you really need to do that before markets start doing what they do because now if you move now, you just lock in your losses. Uh, you've actually been rather more reassuring than I was expecting from this call because, I, like, like I said, I haven't looked at my um, KiwiSaver uh, balance since I looked back in, back in March. But... What I was wondering, is there anyone who's actually winning from all this? I mean, you know, during the Great there are stories in the Great Depression of some people who had the spare cash to invest when the economy was knackered, and they ended up really, really rich. So is there any of that going on? Well, there definitely is a sense that people who are well off and able to spot opportunities could end up even better off because of this. You'd need a pretty good crystal ball, I guess, to pick which shares to buy. But it's interesting to note that some of the ethically invested um, KiwiSaver funds um, at the conservative end of the scale have tended to outperform. I think CareSaver actually had a positive return on their conservative fund in March, which was pretty unusual. And they've also had less sharp falls than some of the others. And that's probably because they weren't in things like airlines and casinos, which have had the biggest slumps. So there are definitely people who are doing better than others. We didn't contact you for specific share investment tips because I was thinking more about Kiwi Savers, which are sort of more basket investments. But I was just wondering, Countdown and the other supermarkets must be doing just fine. And uh, there are going to be a few other sectors of the economy that are doing just fine. So do you have a sense of which shares at the moment are doing well? as compared to just not doing terribly? Uh, well, I should say I'm not a, I'm not a financial advisor. Um, tech stocks are doing reasonably well still because I guess those can often just carry on basically unaffected in a world where no one leaves the house. Netflix must be doing all right. The healthcare stocks, some of those are still holding up pretty well, I think. Fisher and Pico Healthcare was one that stood out to me. is still doing reasonably well last time I looked. Yeah, so Adam's going to jump on the phone to his broker any second now. I can just tell. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> Don't I, say yeah. I said. No, I've, I've, that's get it right, right. That's right. I've only got one line, which is buy, wool, sell, steal, which I saw in a movie <laughs> once. That's all I ever say to my broker. 
<laughs> your broker, whatever. Um, so if we think of KiwiSaver as like a, a microcosm of the economy, or actually not that broader than that, but it, you know, it's got mm. everything in it. It's got shares and bonds and cash and property. Mm. So if we look through KiwiSaver, what does it tell us about what's happening with the economy at the moment? Well, the weird thing about markets at the moment is they are actually performing better than the economy would make you think they should. Why is that? I guess one thing is they tend to be quite forward-looking and so they're all really looking past the downturn while the rest of us are still waiting to find out who's got a job and who hasn't. Right. That might be part of it. Uh, the IMF reckons we're going to contract by 7% or so over the next year, which is quite significant. I mean, right at the moment, of course, people are feeling the pinch that you know people are losing their jobs and so on. And while the people in the economy are feeling bad, the markets are actually ahead of us. Yeah, that's not to say that they won't fall again. I think in the GFC there were a few what they call the dead cat bounces, so we might see those. You're not a financial advisor and we can't give advice that'll work for three million different people, but are there any general bits of advice that you could give about how people should be thinking about and acting with respect to their KiwiSaver at the moment? Um, I guess there are a few things. The first thing is that you should already know what you're investing for, and if you're investing because you want to buy a first home, next year, you should already be in a more conservative fund. So you shouldn't be seeing it move around particularly much. And so just just leave it and forget about it. Um, If you are investing for your retirement, you should be in a more growth fund. And then that should allow you to pick up more shares at a good price at the moment. And so again, just leave it and forget about it. And the other thing is, if you realise that you actually are in the wrong type of fund, you probably need to get some financial advice to understand whether you really have to move now or whether you can hang on and hope that things pick up again before you move. Because, yeah, like I said before, if you move right now out of shares and growth assets, you will lock in your losses. But it's safe to say that the possibly the worst possible thing would be to stop putting money into KiwiSaver right now. I think the worst possible thing would be to move from aggressive to conservative a holiday is not the worst thing in the world. Like if you're in financial trouble and you want to put your contributions on hold, then that's okay. I mean, it's a good time to be putting money in because you're presumably buying assets at a relatively cheap price. But yeah, locking in the losses is the thing I would say do not do. Right. Okay. So so if you're under real stress, give yourself a break. Yeah. It's not the end of the world. Don't freak out. That would be the advice. Don't, don't freak out. That's that's, that's <laughs> yeah. good advice. That's really good advice, not just for for this, but for for life in general, isn't it? Mm. All right. Well, speaking of working under stress and so on, we can hear there are dogs, there are children. I'm not sure if that was Adam's dogs, or but um, and Adam needs to get onto a share broker. So thank you very very much for joining us, Susan Edmonds. No problem. That's the Coronavirus NZ podcast for Wednesday, the 15th of April. I'm Adam Dudding. He's Eugene Bingham, and thank you to Henry Cook, Susan Edmonds, Alex Liu, Catherine George, Patrick Cruson, and Carol Hirschfeld. Thank you for listening. You can find our podcasts on all the usual podcast apps, plus at the Stuff website, stuff.co.nz. Don't forget, you can contact us via our email, viruspod at stuff.co.nz. Tots ends. Mm-hmm.